Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi, I'm Derek O'Reilly, and for over 30 years, I've been a licensed London taxi driver. For 20 years, I taught the knowledge to prospective London cab drivers. During this podcast, I'm going to be joined by experts who are going to bring the forgotten and secret history of London to life. In this episode, we're going to look at the Reverend Russon. Hi, today I'm joined by a very good friend and a very knowledgeable person. Hello, I'm David Charnick. I guide extensively in Tower Hamlets, the original East End, but I'm also a qualified City of London guide, and I teach tour guiding through the London Borough of Tower Hamlets. So, good morning, David. The last time we met, we chatted about the Cutters' riots in Spitalfield and Bethnal Green. That's right. Today, I'd like to talk about one of the murkier people in the East End, um, the Reverend Russon. The Reverend Benjamin Russon was, yep, as you say, a murky character, um, a most curious uh, character, but he does show how you could get away with stuff in those days. It was a peculiarly corrupt area, Bethnal Green, in the late 1700s. And what he did actually is quite timely uh, when you consider what's been going on in the last few years in terms of historical sex abuse cases and so on. Uh, and it's a sordid little story, but it does have a big legal implication, as I'll explain. Where was, they, where was Russon based? <clears throat> Russon was the master at the church school down at St Matthew's in Bethnal Green. St Matthew's was the original parish church of Bethnal Green. Bethnal Green used to be part of the big parish of St Dunstan and All Saints in Stepney. And this is a time when the parish was the unit of local government. You didn't have boroughs in those days. You didn't get them till 1900 in London. So Bethnal Green became independent of Stepney in 1743. And then 20 years later, the church decided to create its charity school for the local poor so that they could send their kids to it. And originally it was a girls' school because there was one charity school there, which happens to be my old school, Palmetters, which was established in 1722. So it's its 300th anniversary this year. So we're talking about the area sort of between Bethnal Green Road, I suppose, and sort of Columbia Road. Is that where we are? 
We're just to the south of Bethnal Green Road on St. Matthew's Row, named after the church, yeah. understandably. Um, so we're on the eastern side, oh, sorry, so we're on the western side of the parish, uh, nearer to the city, because the, the Bethnal Green itself, which still exists, um, is obviously in the middle of the parish, but in the 1700s, it was out in fields, you know, with a very small settlement around it, whereas you've got all this development coming up from Spitalfields and so on. So the parish church is actually on the, the western side of the parish. And uh, <clears throat> so the charity school was established there, and uh, that was 1763, initially for girls, because Palmatus was for boys. But within about two or three years, they were starting to take boys at the St. Matthew's School as well. But it was the presence of the girls that caused the problem for Benjamin Russon. OK, tell me more. <clears throat> All right, well, keep it clean. Um, <laughs> well, basically, he was um, having sex with some of the pupils, the girl pupils. So this is uh, 1776 to 77. And the thing is that uh, he was brought to court at the what was then the Sessions Court on Old Bailey for four charges of rape. And these were all pupils at the school. I have to say one of them, one of the girls, was 14. So that at the time was not underage because in those days the age of consent was 12. It wasn't raised until about a century or so later as the Victorians who raised the age of consent first to 13, then to 16, which is what it is now, yes. to try and combat child prostitution by making it illegal. Anyway, going back to Russen, um, as I say, he seemed to find a school full of girls a, a mite too tempting. And so <clears throat> he was up on four charges of rape. Three of them, he was found not guilty. The trouble was, in those days, uh, there was no real forensics, and so everything was decided on witness statements. And the statements in three of the cases, including the girl who was overage at 14, were too self-contradictory. But he was convicted of raping a little girl called Anne Main between the ages of nine and ten. So that's definitely illegal. And... Um, was he found out or caught because these girls went and told what he was getting up to or any other reasons? Right. It was the case of Anne Main that actually did it because uh, we know he raped her twice, once when she was nine and then once after her 10th birthday in the summer. And what had happened on the second occasion, her elder sister Sarah had been going through the laundry and she found evidence on Anne Main's little shift dress, you know. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> so she said to Anne, what's this on your dress? And Anne told her. So when their mum came in from work, they showed, well, Sarah showed her the dress and her mum took Anne to see a doctor to be examined. In fact, she was examined by two doctors. And then they went to the local magistrate. So Russon, presumably, um, how long did his trial last? <clears throat> the, 
the trial, well, the, the trial lasted a bit of a while because <clears throat> you had four trials. And as I say, three of them, he was found not guilty because of the witness statements. So it took some time. <clears throat> but it was the the trial um, on the charge of Secretan Maine that everything um, sort of came out, as it were, in terms of detail. So this is not quite forensics, but it's a bit of modern uh, application of modern understanding. Uh, because the judge, Justice Ashurst, actually made sure that the medical evidence was given as fully as possible to allow the jury to make up its mind. And this was important because of the definition of rape. Because by law, <clears throat> to get a conviction of rape, you had to have evidence of penetration and evidence of emission. So they had evidence of emission because of Anne's little shift dress. But what about penetration? Because the doctors who gave evidence said that her hymen was unbroken, which would suggest that she had not had penetrative sex. Now, I mean, thankfully, as I say, uh, Anne's mum got her seen by two doctors. And so Justice Ashurst, he made sure that the doctors gave their evidence in full. So evidence of inflammation and redness and tenderness and that kind of thing. Um, then he left it to the jury and he said, it's up to you. You've got evidence of emission, but it's up to you to decide whether there's evidence of penetration. Would the jury have been um, knowledgeable or would they, again, like today, drawn from the community? The jury would be the standard jury, just 12 people, 12 local people brought in. Yeah. And so they wouldn't have been of any particular expert knowledge. They'd be just like today, you know, just 12 ordinary people. But um, the important point was that they were trusted to make up their mind rather than Ashurst making a ruling, which he could have done. He could have said, look, her hymen's unbroken, so there's no evidence of penetration. So, you know, I direct you to find him not guilty of rape. Um, they could probably bring a charge of assault against him or something, you know. But uh, he left it to the jury and the jury said, yes, there is evidence of penetration uh, because of the medical evidence, and also Little Anne's statement as well, because she gave a statement in court. Were the jury allowed to question him, or was it as is today, where the jury just listens to the evidence? What, question the judge? Or to question Russen. 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 Uh, well, um, I don't think Russen was actually um, questioned in the transcript of the trial. I mean, there the, the would certainly been the option. I mean, you, you read uh, trial transcripts from the records of the Old Bailey online, which are quite easy to, to get to. Um, and you can see that, you know, you can see a little cue and that's it. Oh, that's a question from the jury. So, yeah, they could have done. But it seems that none were asked because I, I haven't found any evidence of that. Right, OK, mm. yeah, just I was aware at the time in those days that people could or the jury could intervene and ask mm. questions. Absolutely, yes, they could indeed. Yeah. And uh, Russell's demise, what happened to him when he was found guilty? <laughs> he was hanged. He was hanged at Tyburn. And he was taken to Newgate, Newgate Jail, 
where he was kept in the condemned cell. And then he was taken on the traditional cart ride with others, you know, not just him, uh, down along across uh, where Hoban Viaduct was to be built later on. And then down along what's now Oxford Street, out to Tyburn, where he was hanged. But he had made a confession before he was taken away. So we know there was no miscarriage of justice or anything. So he'd made his confession and he actually said when he was being taken away that um, he was the greatest hypocrite that's ever lived. So he acknowledged his guilt. Um, and uh, so he was taken down there and then just strung up, basically, yeah. Okay, and I believe in those days they used to not use the long drop at Tyburn. It was a short drop, which meant you were really strangled rather than hanged. That's right. You you get the drop by the time that hangings get to Newgate in 1783, when they start hanging them outside um, Newgate Jail at the top of Old Bailey. But before, yeah, you'd be in the cart and they would put the noose around your neck and then pull the cart away or the horse would be driven off and then you'd drop. And as you say, yes, you there would be maybe an inch or two's drop, but that's all. So you would strangle. Yeah, and you'd be hanging there dangling and the people would be watching you. And if you had any mates, they'd be running over and pulling your legs to try and kill you more quickly. And is that where the expression pull my leg came from, do you think? <laughs> um <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> and I heard you mention the people would be there watching. What sort of numbers of people would be attending these executions? Loads. Executions, public executions, were... They were a day out, well, a morning out anyway. Um, the idea was that the execution was public and so it was to deter, to deter other people from doing uh, whatever the crime was. But... Ultimately, of course, it was seen as an entertainment. London's always been a bit bloodthirsty in its entertainments and sports. And so people would come along, yeah, have a little watch. You'd have all these little sideshows. You'd have the broadsheet sellers and the ballad sellers and people selling the confessions, uh, which obviously were written in advance and printed in advance. So, you know, the last words from the gallows, oh, they're already printed out, you know. Um, so they'd be selling these things as souvenirs and so yeah. on. Yeah. So it was a big occasion. Yeah, when I'm sort of in the area, when I'm coming up Bayswater Road and I'm negotiating the modern Marble Arch Junction, mm. I always have a gaze across and look at the sky and think, God, oh, there's a good few people executed under that sky. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and most of them on the, the great Tyburn tree, that big triangular gallows that was erected there. So, mm. Yes. And why, what, what was the demise of, of um, Tyburn? Why was that done away with and the executions moved elsewhere? Uh, well, the easy answer to that is development. You're getting increasing amounts of housing stretching westwards from London. And so it was coming up close to Tyburn. And it's not a good selling point for your nice new terrace of houses if you've got public executions going on down the road and you're going to have these carts coming past with all these sort of shouting people and stuff, you know, either shouting at the people in the carts because they hate them and despise them or shouting encouragement because it's a popular villain or something like that, you know, and all that 
stuff that was going on around Tyburn that I mentioned. You don't want that down the road in your nice genteel no. terrace of Georgian houses. And was there a set day for the for the hangings? I mean, you know, like Saturday afternoon was traditionally a football day. Was was there was there a set day for the for the entertainment of hanging? Um, not at Tyburn, as far as I know. There certainly was when they got to Newgate. Because at Newgate, hanging day was Monday morning. So I know at Newgate there certainly was, between 8 and 9 in the morning. Um, so you could get it all out of the way, I suppose. Um, but uh, I'm not aware of any specific dates at mm. Tyburn. And it's quite a journey, even nowadays, from, from sort of the Old Bailey up to Marble Arch. Were they given a break or a stop along the way, or were they just carted all the way <clears throat> Well, that's where you get the tradition of being stopped along the way to have a pint at the pub. And there are various pubs that claim to be that pub, as is the way with pubs. You know, there's so many pubs that claim to be this, that or the yes. other. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's clear that there would have been one, at least, if not more, pubs where, um, you know, the they would bring out a, a jug of beer for the people being hanged on the, you know, as they were going along. And, of course, inevitably, you were saying about where things come from. There is the school of thought that says that the expression of being on the wagon and therefore not drinking is because you stay on the wagon. You don't get off and get your pint. Although I kind of thinking they'd probably serve the beer to the people in the carts. I don't think they'd let them off because otherwise they might make a break for it. Yeah, I would imagine they would have done. Oh. Yes. Yeah. So. And which pubs? I mean, I have heard, again, with the knowledge um and taxi drivers that the Angel at St Giles High Street always claims to be one of the stopping points and geographically of course that would be appropriate it would because um, all the, the roads like High Hoban and stuff and New Oxford Street they come along significantly later yeah so yeah it would be a possibility mm. and is there any stories of anybody escaping along from the cart along the way from the Old Bailey or Newgate to Tyburn. Is there any famous stories of anybody managing to escape? Not that I know of, to be frank. So um, basically, the, no, probably. They're, they're, I mean, I'm sure that there were people who did make a break for it, but it's just none that I've come across so far. Um, inevitably, there would be times when uh, people have tried to get away, uh, but I haven't really gone in sufficiently into the details, but I imagine that people probably manacled to the carts. Right, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. Um, now, switching back to Russen, yes. what was the legacy of his crime in the East End? What, what, what good came of his crimes? Well, the most immediate um, impact that it had was this decision by Justice Ashurst because <clears throat> after the trial, he got together with a panel of fellow judges and he said, did I do right? Should I have ruled that there was no penetration? Should, was I right to leave it to the jury? Because, you know, obviously, he's... What have I done? He was a big reforming judge, you know, but even so, you know, you can imagine him thinking it might come back to bite me. But the panel of judges said, no, it was absolutely right. It was the right thing to do. And as I say, the fact that he made the confession afterwards showed there was no miscarriage of justice. But this is 1777, and 26 years later, in 1803, you get the next edition of the Treaty of the Pleas, sorry, Treatise of the Pleas of the Crown. And this was an occasional publication, you don't get it anymore, but it listed every single crime on the books 
with a definition of what constituted that crime. That's how we can say for definite what constituted rape, you know, etc. Yes. But it would also then cite any cases that had occurred since the previous edition that had a bearing on the definition of the crime. And the Russen case is cited. And it showed, established in law, that you could have a conviction for rape with evidence of emission, but uh, not necessarily uncontrovertible evidence of penetration. <clears throat> so it was a stage in the definition of rape, which, of course, is something that has continued to develop over time. I mean, at that time... For instance, there was no rape in marriage because you were married, you were one flesh, and therefore you had unlimited access to each other's bodies. So whether you wanted it or not didn't come into it. <clears throat> also, in those days, a man could not be raped because it was deemed to be physically impossible because it was deemed, you know, that the, the act of... You know, we're talking a woman yeah. raping a, a man because uh, the man raping a man is sodomy, which was a, in those days another crime. Uh, but um, if a woman uh, were to rape a man, it wouldn't be rape because he would be erect and therefore he would be aroused and therefore he's given a form of physical consent. Right. So, yeah, it's it's a murky area. So the, the Russen case, as I say, it, it established an important legal precedent one of a number over time. And what impact did his behaviour have on the parish of St Matthews? <laughs> well, that's the thing. Um, I mean, obviously, um, it was a big scandal, but it brought into highlight the political situation locally. As I mentioned, the parish was the unit of local government. And David Wilmot, was the local magistrate, and we've still got Wilmot Street just off Bethnal Green Road, which is where, because he was a developer originally, and uh, he had uh, some housing on the south side of Bethnal Green Road and also on the north side where he had his own home called Wilmot's Folly because it was so big and outrageous, you know. Anyway, um, which also played an interesting part in the Gordon riots locally, but we'll come on to that. Um, but uh, Wilmot, was the magistrate who um, committed Russen for trial. So Russen went before the magistrates and Russen was arguing that, oh, it's some conspiracy, you know, because they want me out. When you consider what he was doing, it probably wasn't a bad idea yes, to get yeah. him out of his job, yeah. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, so he was um, up against Wilmot and there were personal animosities woven into it as well. So it is one of those little instances where you get all these things going on and you get factions, because there were some who supported Russen who were against Wilmot, basically. Yeah. So obviously um, he was removed immediately from post. And as I say, just as well. But, yeah, so that would have had um, an impact in terms of shaking the faith of the locals because, you know, you didn't expect these things to be going on. Yeah, no, they, they, were go they were kept quiet, inevitably. 
Um, it was only because Anne Main's mum had picked up on it and had done something about it rather than saying, you know, don't be silly girl, you know, the, the teacher wouldn't do that. And did St Matthew's Girls' School continue? Oh, the school continued very much so. Um, they, there was a big need for charity schools, um, especially once the area starts to pick up when you get to the late 1700s and into the early 1800s with greater input of population. And so St. Matthew's School and Palmetto School, they were the two charity schools locally. So they were the only two schools that accepted poor pupils. But in the mid-18th century, that wasn't too bad because there weren't too many uh, children that need to be educated because most of them would be helping their parents weave cloth and things like that. And um, But then the Methodists come in and it's the Methodists that actually start establishing more schools. Um, Sunday schools, I mean, we think of Sunday schools as children being given things to to do to play and sort of stuff like that and, and teaching them some biblical stories but the Sunday school was your rudimentary education they taught you how to read and write and things like that um, and so the Methodists were getting in and so the Church of England thought well, we can't have this <laughs> so they started establishing more schools along with new churches that were being planted as well right. did the so, Methodists bring an element of temperance with them? well yes um, there was a lot of um, temperance in the area, there were temperance movements, uh, not just the Methodists, but they were included as well, um, which, as we established before, that uh, alehouses and pubs were very much part of the community. Then, um, you know, you think, well, oh, tension. But there were coffee houses as well, don't forget. Ah, right. That's why I asked the question. I wondered what impact that would have had on the, on the alehouses and the pubs. Mm. So the coffee houses would have opened... There were coffee houses by that time extending way beyond the city in all directions, really. Uh, yeah, so there were plenty of coffee houses and similar available. Yeah. So they would have done their jobs for people to meet. Now, one of the other things that always fascinates me, um, and you and I have discussed this in the past, everybody has this idea of the East End as this murky, dirty, um, Dickensian sort of foggy area you know where you're thinking of Jack the Ripper and later on the Cray Twins etc um, mm. what's the development of the, of the East End you know at one time presumably it was pastoral fields the idea of the East End really is a late 19th century thing when the idea of the West End was developing so you get the East and West End balancing each other with the city in the middle but the thing about the East End it's been the the sort of the workplace of the city, essentially. It's where the docks came. Well, first of all, the riverside wharves, because <clears throat> from 1559 onwards, the only place you could bring cargoes ashore legally in London was the legal quays, which were basically between uh, where Tower Bridge and London Bridge are now. <clears throat> but with a great increase of international trade in the 1700s, especially the late 1700s, you get uh, the wharves starting to appear on the riverside and uh, taking in more cargoes and indeed sending out export cargoes as well. And this is how things develop. They develop downriver because obviously you go downriver, the river's deeper and wider. So the wharves and then the docks they come in, increasing amounts of stuff coming in, 
but that drove industry because the stuff being brought in would be processed locally. I mean, the, the big example, of course, is sugar. Sugar would come in and it would be refined by the sugar refiners or sugar burners or bakers of the East End, who originally, at least, were Germans coming in and bringing this technology with them. But uh, so as time goes on, industry and commerce develop east of the city. And so <clears throat> it's where all the business goes on. And therefore, it's where there's room for shady practice. And of course, with the docks, as you mentioned, which were active right up through the war and out the other side through the 50s and so on, you've got um, a largely rootless population coming in and going out. You've got these merchant seamen who are paid for the voyage only. And so they come in, they get paid off. Oh, they've got to find another ship somewhere. And so you've got men walking around with pockets full of money, obvious target. Yes. Um, but of course, they themselves will be bringing stuff in. There'll be smuggling going on. I mean, the docks would be very well protected. I mean, the West India docks, the ones that opened first, where Canary Wharf is now, um, one of the two little police, uh, cylindrical police buildings survive just by the um, entrance to the docks. Uh, the one that survives is the, if I remember rightly, it's the lockup. And the one that's gone is the one the police weapons used to be held because oh, they were armed police <laughs> because think about the amount of cargoes coming and going out yeah. they need protection um and stealing from the docks because everyone was doing it and they were doing it on the river before the docks came along um and that was you know having as you can imagine a big impact on the economics of the docks so you have to tighten things down and tighten security, which is why you got the river police in the first place, of course, or whopping. Yeah. One of the ironies is, of course, that you committed your crime in the east <clears throat> and you were executed at Tyburn, which was the west part of London. That's right. Although Tyburn goes right back to the 1100s, um, a man called William Fitzosbert, who um, had an, led an anti-taxation protest in 1196. So, you know, tax inequality is not a new thing. Um, but uh, he was the first recorded execution there. And that wasn't the only place of execution. Of course, you're Smithfield, which is well-known yes, yes. place of execution, Tower Hill. <clears throat> also, even Lincoln's Inn Fields, uh, when that was actually a field, well, two fields, Pursefield and Cupfield, uh, one of the plots against Elizabeth I, the Babington conspiracy, which was to get her off the throne and put Mary, Queen of Scots, on the throne, resulted in 14 people being arrested and hanged, drawn and quartered in Lincoln's Inn Fields. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. I always <coughs> presumed that Tyburn... I, I knew, obviously, Tower Hill, Traitor's Gate, etc. So, oh, Lincoln's Inn Field was also an execution site. Oh, yes, various parts were. And you mentioned uh, the angel at St Giles High Street. Well, St Giles Fields... As, as far as I can find out, has the first instance of someone being roasted to death. <laughs> uh, a man called uh, Sir John Oldcastle, who was a uh, leader, apparently, of a rebellion against Henry V. And he was hanged up over a fire and left to roast to death, <laughs> which is pretty gruesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, David, on that note, um, we'll finish today. Um, next week, I'd like to discuss the Bethnal House with you. Oh, absolutely. That's our local library now. Thank you. Thank you. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.